0: From St. Louis Public Radio, this is Politically Speaking.
1: One of the key duties for State Treasurer Scott Fitzpatrick is investing Missouri's money. And since the state is sitting on a whole lot of cash right now, the GOP official wants voters to expand his office's investment abilities. Fitzpatrick joins the latest episode of Politically Speaking to talk about Missouri's financial situation and key changes to the state's low-income housing tax credit let's hit the music.
0: This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first.
1: You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. Joining us, uh, he is Missouri State Treasurer and also, I guess, the father of a newborn baby as well. That is correct. It is Scott Fitzpatrick. First of all, congratulations to you and your family. Um, So I know that you are not the House Budget Chairman anymore, but whenever you come on the show, I usually ask you what the state's financial situation is. And I've been looking at some of the general revenue figures, and they seem genuinely impressive, especially compared to 2020 when the economy was kind of in a COVID-related freefall. And and revenues were down across the board. Where are we as far as the state's financial situation um, as of July fourteenth, twenty
0: twenty-one? Well, we're in really good shape, and I would say much better shape than you know a year and you know three months ago anybody ever thought we'd be in. And uh, you know, a lot of that is when you look at the revenue numbers, uh, you know, for for the fiscal year that we just got out of, and for. You know, people who aren't familiar with it, the state's fiscal year runs from July 1st to June 30th. And so because of COVID in 2020, the tax due date was delayed from April 15th to July 15th. And what that did was it pushed essentially uh, the tax due date for last year into uh, the next fiscal year. So we basically had two tax due dates in the fiscal year that we just ended. And So when you're comparing uh, when you're comparing revenue figures for fiscal year 2021 which just ended on June 30th to the prior fiscal year it's you know we were up like 25 percent year over year but a big chunk of that was because the there was two tax due dates and and compared to zero tax due dates in the prior fiscal year because it got delayed uh, but despite that we did exceed the revenue estimate that the general assembly and the governor came to uh by over a billion dollars. So, you know, the revenue estimate was a little over 10.2 billion dollars and we ended up collecting a little over 11.2 billion. So, uh that's a, a you know, a sizable uh you know, increase over what we even expected. Uh and we can actually for the for the fiscal year 2022 estimate, which is the fiscal year we just began, it's July 1st of this year till June 30th of next year. Uh the estimate that the General Assembly and the governor agreed to is $9.78 billion. Uh, so we can actually decline. Our revenue in the state can decline by 13%, and we would still meet the consensus revenue estimate for this year. So that that extra tax due date had a big impact.
1: So does that mean we have like a billion dollars just sitting in the state treasury, or has that money been appropriated to certain things?
0: Uh, we do have a substantial surplus right now. And and you have to also consider that none of that takes into account the fact that we're, you know, getting ready to receive a few billion dollars uh, from the American recovery plan. Um, that money is going to be, you know, coming soon. Um, and, and we'll be added to that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we, we're basically in a, in a position of, you know, basically having a billion dollars more than we thought we'd have at about this time, uh, if that makes sense. And, Uh, so it's a, it's a good place to be financially. And I guess just another anecdote, you know, the treasurer's job, you know, we, we manage one of the functions is we invest the money for the state. Uh, and when I took office, the amount of money that we were managing fluctuated between, you know, three and a half to $4 billion usually, you know, that's as money would get deposited and money gets spent that money, that amount would fluctuate. But we've been, you know, in the last year, that number has ballooned the June 30th. Uh, assets under management in the treasurer's office was eight point three billion dollars. So it's more than doubled in terms of the amount of cash that we're managing on a daily basis. And that includes the general revenue fund. It includes the the CARES Act money that we still have left over. Uh includes all the other funds in the Treasury, Modots money, you know, all, all of that stuff. But that that can give you kind of an idea of how much more cash we're dealing with and state government than we were dealing with a year and a half ago.
1: And, and that kind of parlays into my next question. It's an admittingly kind of a wonky question, but I think it's an important one. Um, you mentioned that one of your jobs is investing the state's money. And 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 part of that, you know, could conceivably be that if you have $8 billion you're managing, you want to put that money in a position where it's making money for the state that can be used for other things do you have everything that you can you need so to speak to invest that money to its full potential where you could get more than what's sitting in the treasury now that could go to education roads etc
0: the answer to your question is we have some options but we have i would say far fewer options than a lot of state treasurer's office have have in terms of how we can invest the money and we're unique in Missouri in that uh, our investment possibilities are confined to the constitution. Uh, I've talked to, you know, when I go to conferences and talk to other state treasurer's offices about how they invest, they're all very surprised to hear that we're as restrictive as we are and we're, and and that restriction is in our constitution so much so that the general assembly, you know, we can't even go petition the general assembly for, you know, new investment options uh, without the general assembly would essentially have to uh, pass a constitutional amendment, put it to, the vote, to a vote of the people. And so uh, we're, we're limited. We basically can, can do, you know, invest in debt of the United States government, both in the form of, you know, the U.S. Treasury bonds uh, that we hold, but also agency bonds like Fannie's and Freddie's. Um, we can do, you know, bank deposits, which, you know, essentially we, we call them time deposits, which most people would know of as a CD. So we take out CDs at banks. Uh, we have the link deposit program, which is a which is a loan program for small businesses, but the banks are taking a credit risk on that. We're just providing the capital in the form of a deposit in the bank for them to loan that out. Uh, and then we, the I'd say the most risky thing we're currently able to do under the under the current law is is commercial paper, and what that is is basically short term, unsecured corporate debt, which you know compared to a lot of other things that we'd like to be able to do is probably more has more risk associated with it. Um, you know, because you're essentially, you know, they're large corporations that you that you're basically buying commercial paper for That's you're only going to be talking about you know, the Fortune 500 type companies that have commercial paper programs that that are rated high enough for us to be able to invest in them. Uh, but the point is, we can invest in that, but we we cannot invest in things like municipal bonds, you know, so we can't go out and buy, you know, the debt of our municipal governments, we can't buy the debt of other state governments. Uh, and so there's some pretty significant limitations and we also can't you know we can't buy equities we I, you know I, I don't have the power in the treasurer's office to go out and pick stocks or anything like that and frankly I don't I don't you know when we're dealing with the state treasury this you know the, this, the goal I think of state treasurers broadly you know in in a priority order is safety of the investment and then that's number one number two is managing liquidity you want to make sure you have enough cash uh you know in a liquid you know that's liquid you can pay the bills and and make sure state government has make sure that state government has uh you know sufficient liquidity to operate and then the the third priority is yield and that is you know generating a return on the assets that can go back into the treasury to to support the operation of government and so we would like more flexibility uh than we have but Uh, But, you know, it's in the Constitution. And, you know, that's just kind of the the world we live in.
1: So, yeah, I can understand why even the most aggressive treasurer may be hesitant to change the Constitution to allow you to invest some of the state's money in, like, mutual funds or stocks. Because, first of all, that money could plunge in value and you could lose a lot of money. Second of all, like, that opens up a whole wormhole of, like, political influence where companies – you know, could be pressuring the treasurer to invest in them. And I could understand that that has a corruption element to it. But would you want to change the Constitution to, like, allow you, your office to invest in, like, municipal bonds or or state uh, debt? Well,
0: it's funny you ask, because uh, we actually just uh, this last legislative session worked with the legislature to pass HJR 35 uh and it will uh put a question on the ballot next year that would if adopted it would allow the treasurer's office to invest in municipal securities uh it would also give uh to change the constitution where it would allow the general assembly to assign you know other prudent investment options to the treasurer's office uh by law so they would, it would give it it would give the general assembly the power to add to the current investment options uh you know, by by just passing a statute and getting the governor to sign it, and so, um, so that that actually passed, and it will be on the ballot in twenty twenty two. Yeah, to be to be honest, what prompted that for us was number one, the huge the huge influx of cash that we had had been receiving, and the, the size of the portfolio growing substantially uh, was one thing, and then the second thing was the interest rate environment that we're all living in. So, you know, Federal Reserve has set you know the you know, has set interest rates at, you know, basically zero. And so, you know, banks and, you know, the United States government have access to very cheap capital, right? It's, you know, treasuries are are trading pretty much close to zero. Banks can get deposits for basically 10 basis points. And so uh, as far as, you know, for us, those are our primary, you know, ways of investing money. And, you know, it's, it kind of makes, makes it challenging for us to make money under the current structure of the Constitution.
1: Yeah. Now, you mentioned the American Rescue Act money. I think that the state is slated to get about $2.8 billion uh, in two increments. So the state hasn't received the first increment of that yet. Is that correct?
0: That's correct. Uh, We're going to, I believe, the current plan, and this is partially an OA function, an Office of Administration function, we're going to request that money Uh, towards the end of this month. And the reason we've delayed or waited in doing that is because the law requires us to distribute a portion of that money to what the law calls non-entitlement units, which are essentially local governments that were not large enough to receive a direct payment from the federal government of their recovery funds. And we have, there are a lot of those entities in the state of Missouri. And so we needed time to basically get everybody set up to, You know, to make sure we had all the questions answered that we need to get answered from the federal government and prepare to get those payments made, because you only get once we receive the funding from the federal government, we only have 30 days to make that those payments to local governments. And so we didn't want to request the money, you know, get it in the Treasury and not be prepared to get those payments made within the 30 day time frame set out by law.
1: So this is a kind of a basic question. Um, And I sometimes like to break complicated issues down. When your office receives a $1.4 billion check, like how do you get that money and what do you do with that?
0: So it's generally uh, on, on, on that um, on that type of a, uh, so that size of a, of a receipt coming in from the federal government, uh, we receive a wire transfer. And so when we received the CARES Act money, uh, you know, one, one interesting thing that people may not know, and it, may, and it also may not be that interesting to most people, but we, we're required to collateralize all of our deposits in banks, meaning the bank, if, if, if the amount of money we have in a bank exceeds FDIC insurance limit, which is only $250,000, then that bank is required to provide us with collateral uh, with a face value equal to the amount of the uninsured deposit. Or it's actually 102 percent of the amount of the uninsured deposits. So they have to give pledge us treasury bonds, or they have to give us a letter of credit from the Federal Home Loan Bank, or something that we can hold. That way, if there's a bank failure, we have some. You know, the the taxpayers aren't just out the money. Uh, And so, you know, when you're talking about a billion dollars, there aren't a ton of banks that are really, especially right now, really excited to receive a billion dollars from us that they then have to turn around and pledge collateral against. And so w- when we got the CARES Act money, uh, we didn't know. I was actually on a call, a conference call with other state treasurers because we, we were trying to get answers out of Treasury about when that money was going to be coming down because of the collateral requirements. We wanted to be prepared for it. And while I was on that call, the Alabama treasurer had just gotten notified by his staff that they had just gotten their money. And like by the end of the call, like four or five, <laughs> four or five states had gotten their money. And so we were basically, we worked with, uh, in that case, it was Wells Fargo. Uh, they pledged collateral basically in advance because we were concerned that the money was going to show up late in the day when it was too late for us to actually collateralize that deposit. And so they pledged collateral to us in advance and we had the money directed to, to Wells Fargo. Uh, and when, and it, it was a good thing we did that because when we got it, we got a billion dollar wire that showed up at like three o'clock in the afternoon. So... If that would have happened and we hadn't had the collateral in place, we would have had to have rejected the wire, sent it back to him and tried again at a later date.
1: That would have been probably very annoying, to say the least. One thing the legislature is going to be doing over the next several months is deciding where this American Rescue money should go. Is your office going to be providing some guidance about what that money can and can't be spent on? Or do you think that the legislature is going to be able to figure that out on their own.
0: So we're, we're going to continue to host basically the, all the information that comes out of Treasury on, you know, about the use of this money, just like we did for the CARES Act. We're going to continue to host that that information on a website that we have that is mainly going to be a, a tool for local governments to look to to try to figure out, you know, how, how they can spend this money. We were very involved with the local governments on the CARES Act side. um, We fielded a lot of questions and tried to help people understand the the rules and uh, associated with that money. On the state side, um, with the CARES Act money, the legislature gave a a very broad appropriation to the the Office of Administration or the Department of Public Safety uh, for the spending of the CARES Act money it was very non prescriptive there was not a lot of direction given by the legislature it was just like here's here's an appropriation to spend the CARES act money basically for you know for covid related you know expenses and so most of that most of those decisions were made at, you know on an executive branch level in terms of how that money was going to get spent there was the working group that i chaired that, that was involved on the front end with quite a bit of that Uh, But by and large, most of the decisions ended up being made by the governor's office uh, and, you know, the the executive branch, essentially. My guess is that the legislature will probably take a more active role with this American recovery plan money. And they'll have I mean, they have really capable staff in the legislature that that will help kind of educate and brief the, the members of the budget committee and the Senate Appropriations Committee on what the allowable uses of that money is. We'll obviously be available to be a resource if anybody needs us to, you know, if the legislature were to ask for our help and, and you know, dissecting any of that guidance or anything, uh, you know, to, to help them kind of figure out how they want to appropriate that money. But my guess is that the legislature will be a little bit more prescriptive with, the, with this new money coming in than they were with the CARES Act money that came in uh, last year.
1: We'll be right back after this short break with State Treasurer Scott Fitzpatrick. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Treasurer Scott Fitzpatrick. He is a Republican who was just elected to his first full term in office. So one of the things we often talk with you about on this program is the low-income housing tax credit. You've been pretty heavily involved in efforts to revamp how that credit works. On the Missouri Housing Development Commission, which you are a member. And I saw a press release recently about a change to the program that seemed quite interesting uh, as somebody who has followed the debate over the uh, incentive for a long time. Talk about what the commission has done and how do you think it will make this incentive more cost effective for the state?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, as a little bit of background would be, you know, the, the, the state credit had been criticized by, you know, state auditors and tax credit commissions for a long time for basically being inefficient and the, the state getting very little in return for the tax credit dollars that it was spending on low income housing. And so, obviously, in 2017, the the, the program got shut down uh, when Governor Gridens was in office. And after that, there was a couple of years where the legislature uh, tried to pass some reforms, some stuff passed the House, but couldn't get past the Senate, some stuff passed the Senate, uh, but got changed in the House. And ultimately, the legislature was unsuccessful at changing the program statutorily. And so after a couple of years of that, the governor decided he wanted to try to, and the le- several members of the legislature asked the commission to try to do what they could from an administrative standpoint within the confines of existing law to make the program more efficient to make it run better. And so I, I took a a heavy interest in that because I was also very interested in trying to get legislation passed. And we were, since we were unable unable to do that, refocused on what we could do to, to, to improve the program at the commission level, you know, as a member of the commission. And we focused on, you know, a couple of things. Number one is transparency and the, the program has been criticized for a long time for being, you know, a, an insider program that, you know, nobody understood who got the, how people got the projects picked and how projects got awarded. And so it, it bre- bred kind of a, uh, you know, at least a, a perception of that, that, that it was a corrupt program and that that people were, you know, getting favors and things like, things like that. And to me, the best way to solve problems like that is always to make it transparent, make the decision making process transparent. Uh, as, as transparent as possible. And so the first thing we did was we put in place a, a scoring system so that everybody knows exactly what metrics or what things that staff is looking at to determine whose project is going to get selected. And yes, there is some subjectivity into that, and, you know, because I mean, a lot of the categories are, are, you know, are just, frankly, they're just subjective and that, that just, there's nothing you can really do about that but you can at least see how staff is scoring those projects on every category. And then there's a list of every project, how that, how those projects scored and which ones got selected. And I, you know, I think that that's helped pretty substantially. Now some people don't like the score they get, but I think it's at least helped people understand, you know, how the, how the decisions are made and what the process is. And that it's not about, you know, commi- you know, as uh, as a, a politician putting pressure on staff to pick a deal or, you know, or something like that. Yeah. That kind and of, re- re- yeah,
1: that kind of reminds me of like when a uh, former auditor Schweik put like a excellent, good, fair, bad, uh, poor system on some of the audits. Like it was summarizing a lot of like what, what the work was, but it kind of made it more understandable to people that are, are following the issue. I'm sure it's not exactly the same, like, structurally, but it seems conceptually like a very similar idea, uh, but continue.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. So, so, so we focused on that transparency being, you know, is something I'm, you know, I've always been a proponent of from my time in the legislature to my time as treasurer and, you know, on MHCC and so on and so forth. But the other thing we wanted to do was we wanted to improve what the state was getting for its investment, because, you know, the way the program has worked, it's essentially works like we're, we're giving somebody a tax credit or tax credits that are redeemable over 10 years and exchange for that individual providing low income housing. And because they can't get that money in full for 10 years, they can't give us, you know, a dollar, you know, they can't give us a dollar's worth of housing uh, for a dollar's worth of tax credit because there's cost of capital, right? There's basically the cost of money. And so we were looking at how can we improve this because basically at, the, at its best, at its best, the state was getting about 50 cents of housing for every dollar that we were spending on this tax credit program, which I think by and large is a you know bad deal for a A credit rated state that has a cost of borrowing money. We could go borrow the money and build it ourselves for a much lower, you know, much lower interest rate than that. Uh, and at its worst, back in the early days of this program, we were getting like 25 cents for the housing for every dollar we were spending and so the goal was how can we get this get that up how can we get that number up and so we looked at the program and one of the things that the legislature proposed and it was I think agreeable on both sides of the house and the senate was that we should spend less money on this program we were spending 160 million bucks a year on it and which was tied to basically how much we were also getting from the federal government for the program and so what we did is we took that down to 70%. So we're only going to do 70% at the state level of what the federal government is doing in low-income housing, which is still a lot. You know, Kansas, for instance, doesn't even have a state, a state low-income housing program. They only run the federal part of that program. They don't even put state money into it. So for us to do 70% of what the federal government is doing is a lot. Uh, so we went ahead and went with 70%, but because we were doing less than the federal credit, you know, the, the, the law requires us to do this credit over 10 years. Okay. But because we were doing less than a hundred percent of the federal credit, credit, what we were able to do was issue a portion of those tax credits. Um, I, I guess I should say a portion of the projects we issued the tax credits where they were getting uh, more of the tax credits earlier in the, in the 10 year period. And then in the outer years, the later years of that credit, they were getting you know, a, a reduced amount of tax credit. So it was the, still the same amount of credits over the whole life of the deal. But they were just getting a larger amount in the early years. And they were getting a smaller amount in the later years, of the credits uh, of the 10-year credit stream. Right. So and, what I, we found... and
1: I was going to say that probably means that uh, the the people that get the credits can sell those credits on the front end for more money. And that would save the state money over uh, at least it would, it would probably save the state money since they're more valuable. Is, is that correct? Yeah,
0: you're right. Because what's happening is the state's issuing these tax credits or the commission is issuing these tax credits to developers. Those developers need the cat need cash to build the housing. So what they have to do is they have to turn around and get investors to basically buy these tax credits. It's not exactly buying the tax credits, but it's essentially they're buying these tax credits from the developer. And since the developer is selling the credits to an investor, the investor wants to have a return on their investment, right? They're using it to offset tax liability. uh, But some of that tax liability can't be offset for 10 years. And so they want to earn a return on that money while they wait 10 years to, to redeem that tax credit. And so by giving them access to the credits earlier, you know, that they can pay more for them because they're not having to sit on them as long before they can redeem them. And so, yeah, you're right. So by, by allowing a, a larger portion of the credits to, to come earlier in that 10 year period, uh, they, the developers are able to sell those credits for more money. And we wanted to do it, you know, as a pilot program for the first year, because we wanted to compare how that how those credits, uh, sold in terms of the pricing compared to the credits that were just, just, uh, distributed equally over that 10 year period. And what we found is that the credits that that were uh, what we call accelerated, where there were more credits available in the earlier years, uh, sold for like twenty per, or sorry eighteen percent more than the credits that were uh, distributed equally over that ten-year period. And so we were getting almost seventy cents on the dollar for the credits that were accelerated versus uh, high fifty. I think we are getting sixty-eight or sixty-nine cents for the accelerated credits and like fifty-seven uh 57 and a half cents for the for the standard credits. And what that results in, if you look at it on across the entire program, is if we had done the whole program that way, we could have built an additional 86 units without spending any more money over the life of the program just by doing this accelerated credit model. And so uh what we did is we had a, a committee that war, that of the board that, that basically was tasked with evaluating the success the success or failure of this pilot program. And what we found by looking at the data was, you know, number one, that it was obviously successful because it drove pricing on the credits up by 18%. So what we did from with that information was came up with a recommendation to allow now up to 50% of the credits. We wanted to get one more year of data. We thought that the data we had warranted increasing the amount of the credits that were available in this accelerated form. Uh, from the 20% that we started with last year up to 50% for this year. But we wanted to get one more year of data under our belt and make sure that that, that, that kind of experience holds again for another year. Uh, and, and I think uh, so what, uh, what you're referring to is we essentially as a committee uh, voted to recommend to the full commission that that program be expanded. And so hopefully what that means is we'll have more low-income housing for without spending any more money uh you know in the light program
1: so one of the things we've talked about on this program is how difficult it can be to instill changes in this tax credit um you mentioned before that there was an effort to pass some changes into to statute through the legislative process which kind of crashed and burned in spectacular fashion why do you think that there was consensus of doing something like this when maybe five or 10 years ago, this would have been pretty difficult to, to see actually happen?
0: Well, I think I think it's uh, the, the culture of the Missouri Housing Development Commission, I think, has changed radically in the first in the last couple of years. You know, when I first got to the commission, it, it was almost even like frowned upon to ask a question, you know, at the commission meetings much less suggest a change to anything that the staff suggested. And and that to me was kind of crazy as coming from the legislature and, you know, where your job is to ask questions and suggest changes. Uh, And so, I mean, you know, I, I got pretty engaged on that front. And I think what it, what it did is it kind of helped other commissioners who, because we've had new commissioners appointed and the makeup of the commission now I think is really good. we got a lot of smart people, uh, on the commission from all over the state and and most of them are you know not not politicians right They're people who are volunteering their time to serve on this commission and so they're not looking at this through the lens of am I going to make a, you know a particular developer mad? am I going to make you know some tax credit syndicator mad? They're looking at it what makes sense for the program? what makes sense for the taxpayers? And you know as a result of that, looking at the data, um, you know, we've, we've gotten to a point now where lots of commissioners or you know, pretty much all the commissioners are willing and able to suggest changes to staff recommendations. It happens much more frequently now. Uh, but we've also as a, as a commission, uh, you know, and particularly the study group, when we looked at the data, um, yeah, there was some political pressure from some people that don't like this model uh, of how the tax credits are issued. But they, it didn't work. I mean, in terms of what happened with the with this committee, it was a unanimous vote amongst the members of the committee to make this recommendation to the full board uh, that we go to fifty percent of this of the credit or the program being run like this. And uh, I think that that's just kind of a reflection of the confidence that the commissioners have to do what's right and to not worry about the politics around it.
1: Has the full MHDC voted on on this proposal or is that going to happen in the subsequent weeks and months ahead?
0: So tomorrow, so I guess uh it, yeah, I guess it might be today, I guess when you <laughs> when you uh when this airs, uh is the meeting of the Housing Development Commission where we will go over the draft uh QAP, which is the qualified allocation plan. And that's essentially the the document that the board approves to put out to the public for comment on how this program is going to be run for the for the upcoming year and so it'll actually take place uh you know on on the 15th of july which is i guess tomorrow or today depending on how you want to look at it you know when this is released or when this is aired uh so probably by the time a lot of people listen to this the board will have voted on it as, as a whole um, but a majority of the board. So I think we've got 10, pe- 10 people on MHTC. And there were six people on the committee and it passed unanimously out of the committee. So uh, unless somebody on the committee were to change their mind, and all the all the members who weren't on the committee were against this recommendation, then it would, you know, it would seemingly be adopted as part of the QAP.
1: Uh, my last question for you before I let you go, um, there has been some talk that you may be on the ballot in some form in 2022, either for the soon to be open state auditor race, U.S. Senate, Congress, Barry County recorder of deeds, uh, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. I do have to ask, are you thinking of running for something in 2022?
0: Well, you're right that we have, uh, you know, an auditor's race and a senate race, and I think both of those are very important. And I've I've enjoyed being a part of the process of helping Republicans take over statewide, you know, take over the statewide offices uh, and maintain super majorities in the legislature. And so uh, I've obviously, you know, I've been considering uh, how I could be involved in 2022. And what I'll tell you is that probably in the next uh, next several days that uh, you'll see a decision one way or the other on what that will
1: look like for me. One thing we like on the politically speaking podcast is a good cliffhanger and good shadowing. Go. Uh, Mr. Treasurer, thank you so much for joining me today for all of our stories, stlpr.org. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How could people follow you or any other aspects of the Treasurer's office on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web?
0: You can go to at Fitzpatrick Mo on Twitter. I think it's at Mo Treasurer on Twitter for the official office. Uh, And then on Facebook, you know, I literally just have to search myself to find the, to find myself. So just Scott Fitzpatrick or Missouri state treasurer, and you will, uh,
1: you'll find everything you need to know. Thank you very much. And until next time, so long.
0: From St. Louis Public
1: Radio. This is Politically Speaking.